How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're very thankful for this opportunity to come together this evening and to just be refreshed by your word, to focus on your plan. And whenever we're dealing with your plan related to Israel, it always reminds us of your faithfulness, your loyal love, your covenant love that's uh, displayed and spoken about so much in the Old Testament, that even though <clears throat> Israel is in a time of uh, rejection of your plan, rejection of the Messiah, nevertheless, you have not rejected them. And there will be a time when there is a restoration and a future, uh, a future return to you and a return to the land. In the same way, we're reminded as believers that no matter what we do, we can never be outside of your plan or kicked out of the family of God, that you are always faithful and you are the one who holds us secure and it is not based upon our works or our efforts, but upon your grace. And so, Father, as we study these things uh, tonight and review Romans 9 and look into Romans 10, look into the Old Testament that we are constantly reminded of your faithful and loyal love to your people. And, Father, that is what we rely upon. That is what keeps us so that no matter what happens, there will be a... Uh, we can never be lost or forsaken. You'll never uh, leave us or forsake us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Having prayed that, I was reminded of an email I got today that there is, there is a... Let me see if I, I don't have my phone on me. That there is a film that came out that is being released this weekend. It's a Christian film, and it um, has a title like Alone But Not Forgotten, something like that. And it is a true story. I saw the, the, the trailer on it. It looks really good. And it's a story of two sisters who were captured by the Delaware Indians in 1755 in the French and Indian War. And their family is, was was strong believers, so there's a good lead-in before that, emphasizing the the role of the Word of God in the family. And there's this Indian raid. The girls are kidnapped and taken 300 miles away to Ohio, and it's the story of how they learned to how they were trusting God to never leave or forsake them uh, during that time until they, I assume, they eventually got away. The original story was written by one of their um, children or descendants or something, so it should be. It, I looked at the trailer. It looked pretty interesting. I never heard about this this before, so it looked like it might be quite, uh, uh, quite good. So at least from the trailers, you know, sometimes that's all that's good about a movie is what you see in the trailer. <laughs> So you never know, but I'm just going to put that out there and somebody can see it and, and tell me about it. Okay, we're in Romans chapter 10, but what I want to do before we get into Romans 10 is to review. Last week I was not here, and you got to see a lesson in First Thessalonians, but two weeks ago we and three lessons back, two and three lessons back, 
uh, or two weeks ago and three weeks ago. I was going through the end of Romans 9, dealing with the issues related to the hardening of, of Pharaoh's heart, and then repeating that in terms of understanding the importance of free will. Free will is is so significant in history, and, and God has placed within the structure of history as God oversees the flow of history. God allows human beings to have free will, and he's, he oversees history in such a way that no matter <clears throat> what decisions human beings may make, no matter what chaos their free will decisions bring into history, God nevertheless is so great in his sovereignty that he still works things out in terms of the direction of his plan so that his plan is never put in jeopardy by human decisions. Nevertheless, he's able to allow human beings to have that that freedom to make decisions even within the structure of the outworking of his plan. And this is one of the things that we see with Israel. And we've seen this again and again with, uh, and we'll see it many times in Matthew, we're seeing it in Acts, where there is a an offer of the kingdom. What makes it a legitimate offer is because they could have responded, and if they had responded, things would have been differently if they had turned back to God. That's what makes it legitimate. If they, But they didn't, and they uh, that was not God's uh, sovereign will, but it was his revealed will for them to turn back, and if they had turned back, then history would, of course, have been different. But we only know that in hindsight. We only know God's sovereign will as we look back. It's interesting, I find, that that we've got this intersection right now between Matthew, Acts, and Romans in focusing on God's plan for Israel. So I want to go through a little review because it's important to understand how this section of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, fits within the structure of of Paul's discourse on the righteousness of God in Romans. Now, one thing I want to direct your attention to, because this is a problem that we're going to have to address, and it's good to sort of see where we're headed as we build that way, is we have a problem <clears throat> problem passage in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. This is often used as a witnessing verse, and it has, it's, it's totally ripped out of context. But we're going to have to understand it, and you can't understand it if you don't understand the context. And as we get into, remember on Sunday night, we're going to start our Bible study methods class. And one of the things that we will get to when we come to especially uh, interpretation, but it's also important in observation at the beginning of the process, is to understand context. Context, 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 and context changes how we understand certain things. And there's a number of different contexts that we look at. We look at the context surrounding a verse. We look at the context surrounding the chapter or the division within the book. But we also look at the context of the recipients of the epistle. Where are they coming from? Who are they? What are the issues that they're facing? We also look at the context of the the writer who is writing, and that would be Paul or Peter or John. So all of those are different contexts that are important uh, for properly interpreting and understanding a passage. 
We come to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and we read, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, there are a lot of people who think that what that means is that if I need to be saved, then I need to, one, believe Jesus died for my sins, and two, I have to have a public profession of faith, or at least tell somebody that I have to do two things. I have to believe with my heart, and I have to confess with my mouth. But that runs contrary to all of the expressions of the gospel and the gospel of John, which states over 96 times that the issue is believe and believe alone. So how do we reconcile that? What is Paul talking about? Is he talking about justification in Romans 10, 9, and 10, or is he talking about something else? What does he mean when he uses the word, you will be saved? And so that is why I entitled this lesson, Salvation, Not Justification because they are too often different things, especially when we live in our culture. See, not only do you have the biblical context, but then when uh, when I'm teaching people who are teaching or preaching, that you have to understand the context of your audience, and our audience has a context. And your context is early 21st century American evangelicalism, which has a history going back two or 300 years, And within the history of American evangelicalism, you and I have been taught that the, that the word saved is always equivalent to the word justified. And it's not. And so it can, the word saved has different meanings and different nuances in scripture. And you have to understand what is being said. Just because you read, you will be saved doesn't mean that Paul has justification in mind. But that's how most American evangelicals read it. And so when they read that, they say, oh, well, if you want to get to heaven, you have to confess with your mouth as well as believe in your heart. But that's not what that is saying. And so we we need to set this up because that word saved is crucial for understanding Romans 10, especially because Paul uses that in the very first Verse, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, is Paul talking about justification there or something else? So this is what we have to investigate. Now, to do that, we have to spend a little time on context and review since it's been a couple of weeks since we've thought about Romans. Here's a brief outline of of the epistle to the Romans. The first 17 verses contain the introduction where uh, Paul brings into focus the issue related to the righteousness of God. And this is seen in especially the gospel uh, statement of verses 16 and 17 where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. There's that key word again. To salvation for everyone who believes, notice he doesn't say anything here about making a public profession, to everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. There's that principle of taking that gospel first to Israel during that introductory period or that transitional period of the first century. For, he says in verse 17, in it, that is the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just 
shall live by faith. So the issue in introduced there for the epistle to the Romans has to do with righteousness. Then in Romans 1, 18 to 3.20, we saw that there is a uh, a logical, logically developed uh, rationale for why all are under condemnation, for why all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a condemnation of Gentiles in 1, 18 to 32, the condemnation of the moral person who thinks that somehow he has standing with God because he is moral or religious. There's a condemnation of unfaithful Jews in 2.17 to 3.8, and then the conclusion is that all are condemned. In Romans 3.21 to 5.21, the focus is on justification, and there's a transition there in the last part of Romans 5 uh, leading into or preparing the groundwork for the Next section, Romans 6, 1 to 8, 39, dealing with sanctification. Now, what's important to understand here is when, when things sound like Paul is talking about justification, for example, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. How many times have we all used that in, 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 as a gospel verse? This is how you get saved. Except it's not in the justification section of Romans. It's in the sanctification section of Romans. And what Paul's talking about in Romans 6 has nothing to do with how to get eternal life. It's talking about how to experience eternal life in this life. And if we don't walk with God, then we, then we're walking by the sin nature and the wages of sin in the believer's life is death, not eternal condemnation, but uh, temporal death, carnal death in this life. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, a reminder that God has given us eternal life, and we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin. That's the whole argument we saw in Romans 6. So Romans 6 to, through Romans 8 is a section on the spiritual life. And then what seems to some people to be there's a shift to Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Why does Paul suddenly start talking about Israel? And then the last part, the last uh, uh, five chapters, 12 through 16, deal with application. Now, as we relate this to righteousness, break it down this way. In Romans 1, 18 to 521, Paul is relating Israel to the righteousness of God and justification. He shows that the Gentiles are not saved, that the moral person isn't saved, and guess what? Israel isn't either because they're failing in the realm of righteousness. In 6, 1 to 8, 17, he relates Israel to the righteousness of God and to sanctification as he's contrasting grace and law, which is really seen especially in Romans chapter 8. And now that's it, it, the, the whole section's not about Israel. I'm just pointing out that within these sections, he relates his basic theme to Israel as well. Uh, in Romans 8:18 8, to 39, he relates Israel to the righteousness of God and glorification. And in Romans 9:1 through 11:36, he relates Israel to the righteousness of God and its vindication, because the question coming out of the Jewish uh, community is why has God done this? Why has God brought this, this, we would say discipline, this judgment upon Israel if he's righteous? 
How can we rely upon God after he has made these promises to us and now it looks like he's turning to the Gentiles and he's forgotten about us? So why should we trust him? How can he be a righteous God if what you're saying is true, you Christians? And then in 12, 1 to 16, 27, as he's dealing with application, he relates Israel to the righteousness of God and its practical application. So Israel is part of every section in Romans, not just Romans 9 through 11. What we see in terms of uh, back, background here as we get into Romans 9 is that Paul is viewing Israel as an entity, not as individual Jews, but as a corporate entity, because there are two issues at stake with Israel. One is individual justification, and the third is national the national dependence upon God, the national destiny of Israel, so that uh, as they, as a corporate entity, as a nation, turn to God, then God will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and, and the new covenant. And this is what I covered uh, on Tuesday night. And Israel could at any time, because of free will, could at any time corporately turn and call upon the Messiah to deliver them. They won't, but they could. And if they did, then that would trigger a series of events prophesied in the Old Testament leading to the uh, restoration of Israel as a regenerate people to the land. There are going to be two returns clearly seen uh, and prophesied in the Old Testament, a return of, of Jews to the land as unregenerate. Now, a lot of people think, oh, there's only one return and it's regenerate. There is a return, but in Isaiah 11, 11, it talks about the second worldwide return. And that's a, the second worldwide return is a return in, uh, in, in regeneration, a spiritual return. The first return is a return in apostasy. I believe that's what we've been witnessing for the last hundred years or so. And part of the reason for that, there's never been this large of a percentage of a return of Jews to the land. We're just within a few, one or two percentage points of half of the Jews in the world living in the land of Israel. That kind of percentage has never happened. It didn't happen at the time of Christ. It never happened uh, under Zerubbabel or Nehemiah. They just had a small group that returned. At the time of Christ, the vast number of Jews uh, lived outside of the land. They were in Egypt. They were in Babylon. They were scattered throughout the Roman Empire in um, Turkey, Cappadocia, Pontus, places we've been studying in, uh, in Acts. So God has a plan for Israel, and it, even though in one sense it is still on pause, in another sense it's being ramped up as we see this return of Israel. Because when the, when the um, tribulation begins, what begins the tribulation, there are a lot of people who, are, who just haven't thought it out very well, and they think the rapture begins the tribulation. But that's not what begins the tribulation. The tribulation is a term that, I, that is used to describe the 70th week of Daniel in the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verses 24 and following. It's a seven-year period. What begins that seven-year period, what begins the countdown, what starts the stopwatch, is this peace treaty that is signed between the Antichrist and Israel. 
in order, and therefore, in order for that to start, there has to be a political entity of Jews in the land that are qualified to sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist. That means there has to have been, especially in 19th century terms, there would have to be a return of, of Jews to the land to establish that kind of a corporate entity. Well, that's happened now. A hundred or so years ago, when Clarence Larkin was writing his classic book on dispensational truth and his commentaries on Revelation and Daniel, uh, he opined that if the rapture were to occur in his day, it would probably be another 40 or 50 years before uh, the tribulation could begin because so much would have to happen to have this scenario in place that we see in in uh Revelation chapter 5 and 6 at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. But now, a 100 years later, we've seen all these things take place. Uh, the return of, mostly it's the return of the Jews to the land to establish uh, a new nation and to grow to the size, the population size that it is today. That was barely imaginable a 100 years ago. And yet, Israel has grown to great great strength today. So we go back and we understand that there's a plan for the nation as a corporate entity, as as a group, as a whole, as the seed, the descendants of, of Abraham. So God chooses Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant and his descendants as a corporate group through which God's going to do four things. First of all, God's going to bless all the nations through the coming of the Savior seed, as promised originally through Eve and then traced through those genealogies that everybody skips in Genesis 5, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, and that seed line that's traced all the way down from Abraham all the way to Christ, as is seen in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 3 in the genealogies, showing that uh, Jesus is the seed of Abraham, also the seed of David, and therefore qualifies to be the Messiah. Romans 9, 4 through 5, we saw that Israel as a whole is the recipient of God's covenants and promises. But because of disobedience, they're not experiencing the blessings of those covenants and promises today. Third, we see that... <clears throat> that the Messiah would enter the human race through Israel and come initially to Israel as a nation, again seen in Romans 9.5 and in John chapter 1. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. John chapter 1, verse 11. But as many as received him, see, we often memorize that verse. Its context is important. But as many as have received him, to them he gave the power to be called the sons of God. And then fourth, not all of Israel is true Israel, as we've seen in Romans 9. The true Israel are the regenerate ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's true Israel, the regenerate ethnic descendants. That's the remnant. That's the term used in the Old Testament. So not all of Israel is true Israel, but only those who believe in God and his promised Messiah are true Israel. That's in Romans Romans 9, 6. Romans 9, then, as we look at this and we understand how Romans 9, 10, and 11, or seek to understand how Romans 9, 10, and 11 fit, 
We have to see this in relation to the theme of Romans in terms of the righteousness of God, and and we have to understand how that has impacted Israel. Romans 9 demonstrates that the righteousness of God, or demonstrates rather, the righteousness of God in his rejection of national Israel. Why did God reject national Israel? Because they were offered the Messiah and they rejected the Messiah. And so now they're under divine judgment or divine discipline. But it's not permanent. Romans 10 then demonstrates that that rejection is based on Israel's corporate neglect of the revelation given to them. This is seen in uh, the quotation of certain verses uh, for example, in verse 8, where it says, The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. So the, the, the word of God has presented the case for, for the Messiah, but they have neglected the revelation that was given to them, and they substituted the viewpoints and the opinions of the rabbis in the Second Temple period for the Scripture. Rather than holding to a view of Scripture alone, they added the tradition of the rabbis, and that led to a neglect of Scripture. So when the Messiah shows up, they don't recognize him. In Romans 11, we see the answer to the question, has God then, and I would add the word permanently, because that's the implication, has God permanently cast away his people? No, Paul says. He still has a plan for national ethnic Israel. He has not gone back on his promises. There is a future restoration of Israel. There's a future regeneration of Israel, and ultimately all Israel will be saved. So we not only have Romans 9, uh, I mean Romans 10, 9, and 10 talking about the future salvation of Israel. Three verses later, we read another quote from Joel chapter 2 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that has to fit with the context of Romans 11, which emphasizes at the end that all Israel will be saved. They, they're all quoting from the same Old Testament prophecies. So Paul is connecting what the righteousness of God is doing in relation to Israel to what God has stated in the Old Testament. So, Looking uh, an overview of Romans 9 to 11, we see that it, <clears throat> that this begins with a vindication of God's righteousness in light of Israel's uh, rejection of the righteousness of God by faith. That's the issue. Is It's so important to look at this word, righteousness, I think if you're having a communi- any communication with somebody that's Jewish and you're starting to get into an, uh, any kind of expression of the gospel, I'll get into this a little more before we're done tonight, but righteousness is a key concept. The Hebrew word is tzedakah, and that's a word that you're familiar with and you understand it as righteousness, but by the second temple period of Judaism, the word began, began to be interpreted and understood as good works, as charitable deeds. That's going to come out a lot when we get into the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And so they thought uh, within rabbinical tradition, it developed the idea that, that righteousness came from works. This is, this is the problem. So they're not seeing righteousness as a gift of God, as it was with with Abraham, but they're seeing righteousness as something that is the result of what 
uh, what we do. So Israel is rejected. God rejects Israel. And so the question that comes up is after Paul's statement in Romans 8, 38 and 39, um, that, uh, that God, we're not separated from, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A Jewish listener would say, well, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, how come Israel has now been separated from the love of God? Has God abandoned us? God's not really righteous, is he? And so Romans 9 through 11 fits into that uh, explanation where its focus is on God's dealing with Israel as a whole, God's plan for ethnic corporate Israel. And it's important to understand that. There are so many varying uh, contradictory views uh, from people on Romans 9 through 11, and it, it would be, all be resolved if we just understood this whole this whole three-chapter section is dealing with corporate Israel, God's plan for Israel in history. Not individual Jews, but his corporate plan uh, that will be fulfilled and will, and will demonstrate the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and the other covenants related to it. So we need to remember three things. First of all, that God promised us to send a Savior to Israel, and he fulfilled that promise. Uh, the promised Savior came first to Israel. Later, in, in, or in the early part of Jesus' ministry, remember, he sends out the, dis, the disciples two by two, and he says, don't go to, to the Gentiles. Go to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Don't go to the Gentiles at all. Now, does that verse have an application for today? No, there's no application there because it's a statement that is related directly to those 12 individuals and what they were to do at a specific point in time. And there's no application. People get real fuzzy thinking about this concept of application that everything in the Bible ought to apply and it shouldn't, and it doesn't. There are some things that apply, some things that are already applications, and other things that are stated principles that do apply. Uh, the promised Savior comes first to Israel, and the message is only for Israel. This is why you have that that, that really strange scene where the uh, Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, comes up, and, and she, she touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and he turns around and said, who, who touched me? He felt, uh, felt her presence. And uh, then he praises her, because, and, and he says, why have you done this? Because his ministry at that point was just to the Jews. And she says, well, even the dogs uh, get the crumbs off the table. Dogs was a, a derogatory term that was used to describe Gentiles by the Jews. And she just wants the overflow of grace, the crumbs that come off the table. And um, and then Jesus uh, praised her for that. So, but his point, the point is, he came first to Israel. So the focus is, is the th- third thing we need to remember is that Israel as a whole, as a corporate entity, is represented by their leaders, makes a decision to reject Jesus. That's it. They're represented by their leaders. It's a corporate decision. In the end, we see this very clearly. At the end, you have Jews that listen to. What Jesus said, when they see the abomination of desolation and they see the other signs at the midpoint of the tribulation, Jesus said, when you see these things happening, head to the mountains. Don't go back home. Woe to the woman who is with child. 
go to the mountains, and they do. So only the ones who leave and head to the hills are are, are saved. They're, they're ultimately delivered. They're the ones who are already justified. When they get into the wilderness as a corporate entity, then they will call upon the name of the Lord as a nation. And that's when Jesus returns. When they call upon the name of the Lord at the end of the tribulation there, when they're in Basra over near Petra, when they call upon the name of the Lord, they're already justified. Now they want the Lord to return to physically deliver them and establish the kingdom. So God's righteousness in in chapter 9 God's rejection of Israel is not inconsistent with his justice. That's Paul's whole point that we've been covering in Romans 9. It's not inconsistent with God's justice, his righteousness, um, or his justice because Israel has rejected God's righteousness by faith alone. Because Israel's rejected God's free offer of righteousness, God is righteous in bringing them under condemnation. From nine, chapter 9, verse 30... And through chapter 10, verse 13, the focus is that on Israel being, uh, Israel itself is worthy of blame because it rejected, uh, that's poorly written, Israel itself is to blame for its rejection because Israel rejected God's gift of righteousness through faith for righteousness through or from the source of works. That's why Israel's rejected, because they've rejected a righteousness by faith. Then in 14 through 21, Israel's unbelief is not excused on the basis of a lack of opportunity. That's what Paul will develop in those verses, that they've had plenty of opportunity. And then in Romans 11, 1 through 10, Israel's rejection is neither complete nor final. That brings us to the end of the section, and and it's important sometimes to read the last chapter or the last verse, or the conclusion of a, of a chapter in a book so you know where the author's taking you. And what we see in Romans, uh, Romans 9, I mean, excuse me, Romans 11, 26, and 27, is that Paul says, as he wraps up this discussion in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he says, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And then God says, For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And when we look at at verse 27 of uh, verse 26 and 27 of of, uh, Romans, Romans 11, we see that this is a citation from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 59, 20, and 21. And so Paul is applying that and showing when it is going to be fulfilled. Now, what's interesting is the word there, and so, is the Greek word hutos, which means in this manner that he's about to describe. It's the same word that's used in in, um, John 3.16. For God so loved the world is how it's translated. And and people get the idea that God loved the world so much. That's not what it's saying. The word translated so is the same Greek word, and it means God loved the world in this way. 
that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. It introduces something in many cases. So in Romans eleven twenty six, Paul is saying, now this is how God is going to deliver Israel. This is how all Israel will be saved. As it is written, then he quotes from Isaiah, the deliverer, who's the Messiah, will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is when God establishes this. So the word, uh, let me see, let me back that up so I have the right thing underlined. For ungodliness is asabea. Asabea is a word that it means to lack a spiritual life. It has the idea of being ungodly or having a lack of reverence to God, a lack of obedience or authority orientation to God. It's the result of the rejection of God and his plan from righteousness. So this is what God is going to remove from Israel. And the word that's translated turn away is the word aphireo, which means to detach something by force or to take it away or remove it, to cut it off, or to cause a state or condition to cease. So God is going to remove this ungodliness from Jacob. It's going to be the end. As we see, there's a blindness on Israel during this dispensation, and this is going to be removed. And it's at this time that Israel is going to accept the Messiah and turn to God. This word of Pharaoh uh, is the same word... uh, used in Romans 10.4 for taking away sins, for removing something. Okay, that's our introduction. Now, in Romans 10, verse 1, Paul says, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, this expresses Paul's, Paul's desire, his love for Israel. There's no hint of anti-Semitism in Paul. Paul was Jewish. He doesn't hate his own people. And he expresses his love for them several times in Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. In Romans 9, 3, he said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. And here he expresses that it's his heart's desire and his prayer, his continual prayer, to God that Israel be saved. But what does that mean that Israel may be saved? Is he saying that they may be justified or is he saying something else? Here's the phrase. It's the preposition ace, which indicates a direction towards something, an ultimate goal. And the word is soterion. It's in the accusative. It's the noun soteria in the accusative. And it end, it just translated salvation. Now, it's really important to understand how Paul uses salvation. I don't think Paul ever uses the word group from sozo, the verb, or soteria to ever refer to justification. Let's remind ourselves that there are three stages of salvation spoken of in the Scripture. And the word for saved is used of all three together in some places, 
or for each phase individually. In phase one, we talk about justification. So one way to make this clear is to talk about justification salvation. Paul doesn't use the word salvation or saved as a synonym for justification anywhere in Romans. He's very technical. When he's talking about how to get right with God, he uses the word uh, justify. And so this is exactly what um, he does in Romans 10, 9, and 10. After the verse that I read to you earlier in verse 9, talking about confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart, Paul then explains that as saying, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. That's justification language. And then he says, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's as if it's a second step. He's talking about something different from justification. The spiritual life or phase two is sanctification salvation, talking about how we are saved in this life from the consequences of sin. And then the third phase we talk about as glorification. So in phase one, we talk about being saved from the penalty of sin, that we were saved in the past. In phase two, we talk about being saved from the power of sin, that you are being saved uh, continuously every day. Every time we go through a sp- spiritual life and we apply the word, we are being saved. Earl Rodmacher used to try to shock people by saying, I was saved yesterday. I was saved the day before. I was saved this morning. I was saved this afternoon. I'm saved now. I'll be saved again tomorrow. He was using the the term saved in this sense, in terms of sanctification, because it's our moment-by-moment spiritual growth. And then final salvation is when we're saved from the presence of sin. When Paul usually talks about that in the future tense, you will be saved. So the word salvation has to be understood in terms of these different tenses. Now, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, we see the first mention of the word uh, salvation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now, one of the first things that happens is you read that and you see the word gospel. And you immediately want to say, see, that's how you get to heaven. But there's a narrow use of the word gospel and a broad use of the word gospel. Romans is all about the gospel, but Romans is telling us a lot more than just how to get to heaven. Romans is telling us not only how to get to heaven, how to get justified, but how to, how the justified person is supposed to live, how you and I are supposed to live on an everyday basis and what that means. That's salvation in the full sense. So gospel has a narrow sense of the good news that we need to hear in order to be justified and have eternal life and go to heaven when we die. And secondly, gospel has a broader sense to include the whole realm of Christian doctrine because everything in the New Testament is good news. It teaches us how to live, how to have the joy of our salvation, how to have peace, and how to live for God. That is all part of the gospel. So we have to address this issue when we're looking at passages and not interpretive verse because our 
19th, 20th, 21st century American evangelicalism has restricted the meaning of gospel to just how to get to heaven. The Bible doesn't use it in that narrow sense. We talk about the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John, but all four of those gospels tell us a lot about how to live the spiritual life. They're not just telling us how to get a spiritual life. So we have to understand that gospel has more has has a narrow use and a broad use. So we see this connection in Romans six, one sixteen and one seventeen between the the gospel that that's the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Again, emphasizing that our our broad salvation, the spiritual life from birth, spiritual birth to the time we're taken to be with the Lord is based on faith, the faith rest drill, where we're trusting God, we're mixing our faith with the promises of God so that as we walk step by step, we're depending upon him and resting in his care, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. For those who are disobedient, there's the wrath of God again in time. So Romans is talking about time in history, time in our lives, not talking about some sort of future eschatological uh, event, but realizing that real-time salvation or deliverance from the power of sin in this life. Now, when we get into Romans 10, the next time we see the word salvation used is in Romans chapter 10 and 11. Three times of its uh, uses in Romans or in the, it, it, we find it in Romans eight, uh, Romans ten, rather. Uh, the first verse, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, if you just looked at that verse, you might walk away and say, "Well, he's just he's talking about justification there." But you have to look at the whole context of how the word is used throughout the entire book and throughout the context. Yet yeah, he could be talking about justification there, but he doesn't use the word that way in the rest of the epistle. So that argues against just reading this justification idea into the text. Romans 10.10, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. Clearly distinguishing uh, justification by faith alone, the first part, to something in addition. That, that confessing with the mouth isn't getting you justified. It has to do with phase two or phase three salvation. And then Romans 11, 11 talks about salvation coming to the Gentiles. And then uh, Romans thirteen eleven, Paul says, And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation, see, they're already justified. And Paul says, Now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So again, he's using salvation in a very different sense than just justification. Now let's see how this works in terms of just the verb saved. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood. He's using a past tense. He's talking to an audience of believers, and he says, right now we've all already been justified, past tense. But we shall be saved, future tense. You can be justified but not saved. Now, if you want to interpret saved the way 
evangelicals use it all the time, you're confused right now. How can you be justified and not saved? Because the words aren't synonyms. In some cases they are, but in other cases, many cases, they're not. For when we were enemies, verse 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus' life is not the basis of justification. The basis for justification was his death on the cross. His life is the pattern, the precedent for our spiritual life walking by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.24, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? Now, that's Romans 8 is all within the context of the spiritual life. It's not in the context of justification anymore. And saved there is talking about our realization of our new life in Christ walking by the Spirit. Roman, then we come to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and it becomes clear that when uh, Paul is talking about being saved here, he's not talking about justification. He's talking about something in addition to justification. And if you look at the original context in Joel 2 about whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, the original context isn't talking about spiritual justification. It's talking about physical deliverance when Israel is on the edge of being totally annihilated. So having said all of that, when we look at Romans 10.1, it's not... It, it's not legitimate to think that he's talking here about individual Jews getting justified. He's Number one, he's not talking about individual Jews. He's talking about God's plan for corporate Israel. And number two, he's talking about their future deliverance because that word saved there is restated in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Uh, it's restated in or the principle is, is there in Romans 10.13, and then it's restated again when we get to uh, Romans chapter 11, verses uh, 25 and 26. So his desire is for Israel to be saved, for that, that fullness to come where, where the Jews as a nation turn back and accept the Messiah, at which time he will deliver them and establish his kingdom. But there's a problem, and that problem is stated in verses 2 and 3. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They are passionate about God. There are, and we see a lot of secular Jews in our world. There are a lot of Jews in, in the U.S., or a lot of, in fact, most Israelis are completely non religious, they're not observant at all. And in many cases, they're just agnostic. They're not any different uh, from anybody else that you meet that's, that's just a, an agnostic secularist. But there are those that do have a tremendous passion for God. And I'm just impressed by their passion and their, and, and their works. I've been to several Shabbat services, and you just see them wearing their prayer shawls, and they've memorized all of the prayers and memorized. I wish half my congregation has memorized half the verses that, that they've memorized. Uh, they, they have a passion for God, but there's something missing. 
And that's what Paul says here. It's not according to, and in the Greek, it's epinosis, not just gnosis, which is an, an awareness of academic knowledge or facts, but it's a full knowledge, an applicable knowledge. Uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's, they don't have a full knowledge or full understanding of the scripture. Why? That's the next verse. It begins with the four, which in the Greek is a, is the Greek word gar, which indicates that we're, he's now explaining what he just said. Why is it that they, it's not according to knowledge? Because they are ignorant of God's righteousness. Now that's the theme of, of Romans, is the righteousness of God. And they're ignorant of God's righteousness. And righteousness is a key issue in in rabbinic Judaism, but it's tzedakah, it's the doing of good works and charitable deeds. In fact, one of the major ideas in modern Judaism is the idea that the role of the Jew is to repair the world. In, in Hebrew, it's tikkun olam. Their job is to repair the world, to right the wrongs, to uh, take care of people. We would say that it's a little bit of a perversion of the blessing uh, command that God gave to Abraham that you're to be a blessing to the whole world. And so uh, this is why you see things like when they had the earthquake in the Dominican Republic, the very first emergency responders on the scene are from Israel. Uh, they, they have th- th- what they're doing in Africa in going to uh, the impoverished nations and teaching them principles of agriculture and how to do how to farm and 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 what to do about water and solving the water problems is just incredible. Many times their teams go in, but under under some sort of uh, non government organization title because the the people have a hostility or the government is hostile to Israel but they go in anyway just sort of as a non-government organization and they help teach the people things. In contrast to Americans, Americans throw billions of dollars at impoverished countries and we send them tractors and all kinds of, of things that they can use. But you know what? We don't teach them how to read. So they can't fix anything we send them because they can't read the manuals. What the Israelis do is they send educators in there to teach people how to read, how to read the manuals and how to use the manual. You know, it's like a that's such a blinding flash of the obvious, but Americans just think that if we can dump a load of cash on people, then we can go away and our conscience is, is, is now clear. And we haven't done anything but create enormous problems. So the Israelis are out there, but this is all part of this idea that they are uh, doing tzedakah, they're doing works, and that these works accumulate for righteousness. But this is not what the Old Testament teaches. In Isaiah 64, verse 5, Isaiah says, Isaiah the prophet, who is a mature believer, says, and we, including himself in the pronoun, we are all become as one that are that is unclean. Every one of us, all of us Judean Jews in approximately uh, 630, 640, earlier than that, about 670 to 700 B.C., he says, all of us, all of our righteousnesses are as a polluted garment. The old King James is all of our 
righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Not our unrighteousness, but all of our good deeds, all of our tzedakah, all of our, we could even translate this, all of our charitable works are as filthy rags in the sight of God. That's God's opinion of the best that we have to offer. And so righteousness is a key theme in the Old Testament. Even if you go along and say, okay, let's just call it charitable deeds. We're going to, we're going to understand the concept. How did you get righteousness in the Old Testament? You got to go back to Abraham. Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, we're told that Abraham had already believed God. That's the sense of the verb, verb tense there. Abraham had already believed God. And it was reckoned, it was accounted to him as righteousness. Not because of what Abraham did, but because Abraham trusted God for his salvation. So how do you get righteousness? Not by doing the law, but because the law wasn't even in existence in Abraham's time. That's Paul's whole argument in Romans 3 and 4. But how do you get righteousness? How did Abraham get righteousness? By believing in God, and God imputed or credited righteousness to him. That's our doctrine of justification by faith alone. And then what you can do is show how righteousness is a key element of Isaiah 53. In describing the suffering servant, the Messiah, in Isaiah 53, we read he was despised and shunned by men. He didn't fit the preconceived notion in Second Temple Judaism of what the Messiah would be like. They thought that the Messiah would be a, a victorious, conquering king and not a, a, a suffering Messiah. So he was despised and shunned by men, a man of suffering, familiar with disease, as one who hid his face from us. He was despised and we held him of no account. Yet it was our sickness that he was bearing. And see, some people to get the idea that that this is talking about Jesus died for our physical healing. But in the poetry of Isaiah 53, the healing and the sickness is, if you read through the verses, is parallel to sin and bearing our sin. So it's our we have substitutionary atonement here that that the Messiah bore in his body on the tree our sins. He endured our suffering on our place. We encountered him plagued, smitten, and afflicted by God, but he was wounded because of our sins. See, that's the parallel. He's wounded because of our sins, crushed because of our iniquities. That explains what the healing um, of the sickness is about in Isaiah 53.4. It's a sickness is another way of talking about sin. Crushed because of our iniquities, he bore the chastisement that made us whole. Now, I have quoted all of this out of the Jewish Publication Society, Tanakh, from 1918. So we're seeing what the, what, how the Jewish Bible is translated. Uh, we usually translate this, he bore our peace, the chastisement of our peace. Uh, they translate, he bore the chastisement that made us whole. See, that's a great way to explain the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Messiah as a substitute paid the penalty so that we could be made whole, so that we would have shalom with God, peace with God. And by his bruises we were healed. Healed of what? Healed of sin that had brought about spiritual death. Verse 6, we all went astray like sheep. In Judaism there's no doctrine of original sin. There's no doctrine of total depravity. 
And yet it's it's evident on the page, pages. All of our righteousnesses are its filthy rags in Isaiah 64. It's obvious. Here we're all astray like sheep. Even Isaiah has gone astray like sheep. Everyone has the same problem. Each goes his own way, and the Lord visited upon him, that is, on the, on the suffering servant, the Messiah, the guilt of us all, substitutionary atonement. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, he was maltreated, yet he was submissive. He did not open his mouth like a sheep being led to slaughter, like a ewe, dumb before those who shear her. He did not open his mouth. That was fulfilled with Jesus. He did not utter a sound until the Lord poured out our sins upon him on the cross. They whipped him, they beat him to, almost to death, and yet he did not cry out until our sins were imputed to him. Verse 8, by oppressive judgment he was taken away. Who could describe his abode? For he was cut off from the land of the living, meaning that, meaning that he was killed, through the sin of my people who deserved the punishment. Once again, the idea of substitutionary atonement. And then in, in verses 9 and 10, we read, His grave was set among the wicked. That talks about uh, that his grave was set, was a rich man's grave from Joseph of Arimathea's grave. And then look at verse 10. But the Lord chose to crush him by disease, that if he made himself an offering for guilt, a guilt offering. So that's, again, that picture of substitution. He might see offspring and have long life. And then we'll go to verse 12. Assuredly, I will give him the many as his portion. He shall receive the multitude as his spoil, for he exposed himself to death and was numbered among the sinners, whereas he bore the guilt of the many and made intercession for sinners. Now, when we get into this, what we see in the, in the Hebrew is it talks about justification that he is the one who became the one who justified, uh, so that doesn't come across in the Hebrew trans- translation. Um, but in, in um, verse 12, it expresses the fact in the, in the Hebrew that he, when he's numbered among the sinners and he bears the guilt of the many, that he is the one who brings justification. Now, in the New Testament, we read that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, same concept out of Judaism, but according to his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul then goes into the fourth verse of chapter 10, saying, for Christ is the end of the law. He's fulfilled the law in his life, but because he is perfectly righteous, that we can receive righteousness by belief in him. And we'll come back next time and start looking at that particular uh, passage. Uh, oh, I know what happened. I got a verse out of context. Verse 11 in Isaiah 53, 11. Out of his anguish he shall see it, he shall enjoy it to the full through his devotion. My righteous servant, God says, he is the righteous one, makes the many righteous. That's justification. So this idea of righteousness runs its thread through so many of these key passages in the Old Testament that it's not a righteousness that comes from the law. This is what Romans 10.4 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes because the Jews, in verse 3, sought to establish their own righteousness by not and not submitting to the righteousness of God. So we'll look at how 
uh, this righteousness plays out in understanding the rest of Romans 10 and the future deliverance of Israel next week. Father, thank you for this time that we have together to look at these uh, important passages, to be reminded that as we go through the Old Testament, the issue is righteousness again and again and again from Abraham's reception of righteousness, the imputation of righteousness to Abraham because of faith alone, all the way up through Isaiah's recognition that that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But it is the Messiah, the servant in Isaiah 53 who comes to justify the many because he and he alone is righteous, and his righteousness then is given to us. Father, help us to understand these things and to continue to have a a tremendous heart for Israel, praying for their uh, salvation, recognizing that ultimate deliverance comes uh, only in the future and after much suffering in the tribulation. And, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.